I feel like if you want to tackle a new market, start with the hardest, because if you break through in the hardest, then everything else will just come together easily. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Hello, and welcome back to Destiny Benders. Today, our guest is Susan Fong, the CEO and co-founder of Oxbridge Holdings. Hi, Susan, and it's great to have you on the podcast. Hello, everybody. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Great to meet you, Susan. I'm glad you could make some time for us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Tell us about you. How did you get started in international education? And what's your story of where you are today? I started with an unusual path. I would say I'm a bit of an anomaly because I initially trained as an architect and I even practiced as an architect designer many moons ago. That is unusual. You are actually the first person to tell us on the podcast that you got started as an architect. I was not expecting that at all. People often say, I have an unusual story, but that is totally different. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad I shocked you. Uh, hopefully in a delightful way. So I started my career as in architecture. I did practice, but then um, I soon realized it wasn't for me. I might be too early for my time. So that's another story for another time. Um, so after architecture, I stumbled across journalism. In fact, I found my job on a flight back to Taiwan. There were two papers looking for a business journalist. I have no business background whatsoever, because as you know, I studied architecture and all they required was you need to have bilingual ability in English and Chinese. And I thought I fit the bill. So as soon as I landed, I submitted my CV and my application and got listed. Well, I got the jobs at both papers and obviously I chose the more established one. And that's when I started my journalist career in Taiwan. And from that, because it was business, it was tech. I had lots of opportunity to rub shoulders with the likes of Michael Bloomberg of Bloomberg, Carly Fiorina of then CEO of HP, Meg Whitman of eBay, and Jerry Yang, founder of Yahoo. It sort of um, planted a seed in me to want to start my own business. And as I was doing my job as a journalist, um, interviewed different people in Taiwan, Somehow I became the go-to person on all things education in the UK. Because in Taiwan, due to its history, lots of people know about the US since the 70s. Not many people know about Europe and the UK. So when they heard about my background and where I graduated, they just got curious and started asking all sorts of questions. How do you start? Where do you go? So I dug a little bit deeper and realized there really was a gap in the market. There was lots of consultants serving the U.S. market, not that many for the U.K. 
And that's when I decided, haha, I'm going to set up shop and do it properly. And I guess, you know, when I started in 2002 in Taiwan and really just made a go at it, and the rest is history. So let's go back there for a second. So you said you became an architect, you studied to be an architect. Was that something that you always wanted to do? Like when you were back in high school, were you thinking, I'm going to grow up and be an architect? Or was that something that just happened? That's a very good question. I came to the UK at the age of 13. And before that, it was, um, well, the very, very early days. I was born in Taiwan. And then I, I, I lived in USA for about five years. And that's when I had to learn English right from the beginning and give up everything on Chinese. But then by the age of eight and nine, I went back to Taiwan. So it was reversed. I have to drop English and learn Chinese from scratch. And at the age of 13, I did it over again. I had to stop, you know, re-pick up English. So there was a, there was this back and forth. So you, I would say my own education background is a mixture of things. Um, I also had this spoon feeding or a rope learning from the sort of Chinese side of me. But I also have a bit of a critical thinking, creativity. That was, I would say, it was really um, planted in me um, since I came to UK. So it was always a bit of a mixture of two. Did I really... No, exactly. I wanted to do architecture. No. I think at the age of 16, at the age of 16, I knew I wanted to do three things in life. Architecture wasn't really part of it. Um, the number one thing I wanted to do was to, be gay, to become someone creative, an artist. I guess you can say architecture kind of fit the bill, but it takes a lot more science than be just a pure artist. So that was the first thing I wanted to do. The second thing I wanted to do was I want to become a journalist. And I actually went on and achieved that. That's something I, I'm really happy about. And I guess the third thing I'm still yet to fulfill is I want to be a radio broadcaster or a DJ. You know, possibly if you say today being on the podcast, this could be <laughs> I'm fulfilling my three dreams too. So yeah. I mean, this could be your like breakout into the, the radio. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you for helping me by inviting me onto your podcast because you're helping me realize my third dream. <laughs> That's amazing. So you you obviously art was something that was close to your heart. How did you then decide on architecture in college? Okay, I, I guess really is because when I came to the UK as a foreigner or international student, obviously English is not my native language and you really have to play to your strength. And even though when I was back in Asia, maths really wasn't my strength. But when I came to the UK, suddenly I became a genius in maths because I could do mental maths <laughs> and whilst all the other kids are using calculator. And that gave me courage. That gave me confidence. I thought, oh, maybe I could do this thing. So when it came to senior high school and choosing A-level, I chose the most typical subjects that most Chinese would choose, you know, math for the maths, physics, and economics. I mean, really stereotypical. And from that, I could obviously go the business economics route. And my dad really wanted me to go down that route because he felt... I was very suited, but being a very defiant and rebellious child, I said, no. So I went the other way. I said, I want to combine what I perceive to be, or other people perceive as my strength, you know, the mass and physics, but with something that's closer to my heart, art, hence the combination of architecture. How long you... were you an architect then? Well, I studied for five years. <laughs> it was long. And I did two years of um 
I wouldn't say internship, but in the UK, we do three years of degree, one year of practice, another two years of a postgraduate diploma. You don't even get a master, you get a professional diploma. And then another year of practice. Then you finally sit your architecture, um, you know, what we call it RIBA, the professional practice exam. So I kind of gave up on the six year. Yeah. So I did a bit of practice in between as an architect designer because I didn't fully have the license. So I had to go under someone else. But, you know, I think everything happened for a purpose. How I did that made me who I am today. I think architecture taught me how to present, how to stand on the stage and really smile when people are trying to take you down because you need very thick skinned to protect and really defend your idea. And secondly, I would say I'm really walking my talk. I always tell my students that you do, you're not defined by what you study. You can choose however pathway you want to do. Sure, maybe you're studying economics because daddy, mommy want you to do it. Sure, you've probably gone down the medical way, but deep down you're a poet. I actually had a friend who wanted to be an artist, but she was pushed by her Hong Kong parents to go into veterinary science. And she's now one of the best um, liner printing artists in the whole of UK. This is what I'm saying. We are not defi defined by what we study. We can choose our own path. Whatever we did at school, in university, fantastic, it's great. If we really feel this is something that it's not our calling, we can choose and carve a different way. And by having this experience, I could exactly tell my future um, students, clients, and say, this is me. Yeah. They might think, oh, I don't want to be an um, education consultant, but it's not for everyone, but it's the right pathway for me. I mean, it's definitely successful and that's definitely good going. Fast forward from your architecture training to becoming a journalist to then deciding, okay, I can do this. I can start my own business. How did that get started? You had the idea, you ran with it. What did you do? What were your first steps in setting up a, a business as a, an education consultant? Yeah, I was in Taiwan at the time. And actually, believe it or not, it was after many rounds of drinking with all my journalist buddies. There were 16 of us that we always get, got together, just chit chat and gossip. And all 16 of us all had dreams to set up our own things in different areas. Do you know what? I was the only one that actually walked away from journalism and set up my business. The only one. Everybody else continued with their uh, reporting job or some got married, had kids and decided to just become a full-time parent. So um, it's a tough gig. So when I started, I started in not a basement, but like an extra bit of a um, building on top of a building. So you take the lift, go to the seventh floor, you have to walk extra flights of steps to go to the eighth floor. And so it's like a shed on top. I started when I was still working for my previous um, reporting line, you know, the, the job. So it was always in, in parallel. And for the first three years, four years, made a loss every year. And really it was my husband that supported me. He had a comfortable job. He worked in finance at the time. And to be honest, the first year we set up, I didn't know what to do. I said, I'll go out and do the UK, but I actually did more USA MBAs than I did in the whole of UK together. And the second year, SARS happened. Do you guys remember SARS? 
Are we no. old enough to remember SARS? So SARS meant nobody was coming out of East Asia. And that was my entire market. Thankfully, I was young. Thankfully, I really, I didn't have a kid at the time and I didn't really have much debt. I said, okay, I'll take a year out as sabbatical. I will return to the UK. And what I'll do is visit these universities. Seeing is believing, isn't it? At the time, I didn't even know that there was a model called commission. I honestly, I just took on the US model whereby you're an education consultant, you charge the students and the families fees. And I worked my way like that. So I was walking up and down, traveling in the UK. And one of the universities who I'll forever be grateful to them, I think it was either Middlesex or Lees, um, they actually said, you know, Susan, we really appreciate what you're doing. We really like you. And I think you're legit. But how about you recruit for us? This is how it works. And this is like a light bulb moment to me. You think, oh, okay. So this is how everybody works as an agency. As soon as I went back to Taiwan, I started to remodel my business. And in parallel, we have the two lines of service. One, that we take our clients hand in hand, every step of the way, very VIP, very bespoke. We charge the clients. On the other hand, we also represent universities. We start recruiting, um, representing them, promoting them as agent. And that's how I built my business even to this day. We remain to have two lines of service in parallel. What an amazing journey. I can only imagine the early days, the struggle that, that every entrepreneur goes through. So first, I was going to say, you probably drank more than your 16 colleagues because they... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm very good at drinking. <laughs> Susan, you said something about, you know, you saw the opportunity that there were a lot of agents and there still are a lot of agents out there uh, that, you know, for the most part, do a lot of disservice to the students or mm. the universities. Speak about that a little bit. And how does your business model, although you kind of function in a similar way, mm. how are you focused on you know, differentiating, differentiating yourself and making sure that the focus is on the student? Mm, that is a really good question because I sometimes, you know, I have to remind myself every day that who, who are my clients? Because I have two sets of clients, don't I? I have the student or the families, but I also have the universities, my frontline consultants, the ones that really are talking to the students and the families. They do not know 100% of who we represent. And I tell them, doesn't matter if this client pays or don't pay because we have two lines. So whichever way they choose, if that student is of, say, Oxbridge quality, I'm not saying Oxbridge is best is for everyone, but just say if they are Oxbridge quality and if the student's willing to make it a go at it, we'll get them, we'll help them no matter what. Because obviously Oxbridge, don't work with agents. I mean, I'm from Cambridge, so I know they, they don't need to, but we will do that. And that's been my principle all the way long. And we're very transparent to our students as well. We will tell them that these are the universities we represent. And doesn't that sort of mean that um, applying through us, you will be more likely to get an offer? No, it's all down to you. It's merit-based. However, we do probably offer a more efficient um, pipeline in terms of communication because we know who to talk to. And if you're a, a tricky case, uh, you have a very unusual background, therefore we have um, the means to actually put you in front of the university to let you explain yourself, give you a, you know, give you a microphone to talk about it rather than being just a statistics and be rejected straight away. Thinking about your business, and obviously that model has been quite successful for you, 
you operated for a number of years from Taiwan, but I know that you now live in the UK. So can you tell us that story? How did you get from Taiwan? At what point did you decide, okay, I'm leaving Taiwan and I'm moving? Or do you actually spend 50, 50% of your time? I don't know. <laughs> so between Taiwan and the UK, there was a, there's actually China as well. So majority of my business comes from China. I would say probably 95% comes from China. So um, we were doing very well in Taiwan because we brought something different to the market. We were UK focused. You know, we were probably one of the only education that charged high fee, basically, and really did um, deliver service, good service to the client. So 2006, I had the opportunity to be invited to check out what China's about. So I went on a like an inward investment tour kind of thing, and I went to Beijing. And that was just the moment I thought, oh, got to be here, you know, because there's just so much opportunity and so many students who are in the dark who need my help or need our help. A lot of my fellow Taiwanese um, business friends, whether they're in education or in other business, they say, oh, Susan, don't go to Beijing. You know, that's a tough gig. Go to Shanghai because that's where all the Taiwanese are. You know, we all have our circle. We could help each other out. But that's not how I do it. I feel like if you want to tackle a new market, start with the hardest, because if you break through in the hardest, then everything else will just come together easily. So I kind of gave myself this tough challenge to start with Beijing. Not many Taiwanese there, no friends whatsoever. And it felt like it was um, a startup all over again, like back in 2002. So the first December, I remember I was there. Christmas time, I mean, Chinese don't really celebrate Christmas, but for me, it's quite a big deal because I grew up in the West. I was on my own, you know, snowing outside. I remember I was sitting in Kentucky Fried Chicken with my bucket, you know, what, 20 piece? I was just like, oh my God, this is so hard. I'm so alone. And I was waiting for my people I wanted to interview to turn up at KFC. Yeah, that's how I started. I initially wanted to take the same model as I ran in Taiwan to, to China, just think we'll test it out. Obviously, I know we have to tweak things, but let's go with something first because this is something that we know, okay? If it's not broken, why fix it? So let's just stop with that. And it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. It really, I mean, Oxbridge is a great name, but, you know, people were just turning up at the doorstep. I think, oh dear, you know, I'm running, running dry here. What can I do? So um, I asked around, I asked for people who's been around long time, and very gratefully, I mean, sometimes I always feel whenever you're the downers, then you, if you've done good all through your life, people will turn up, angels will turn up. I mean, it's like good karma. So another Taiwanese bloke came up to me and say, you know, and this guy's made a big, big business in Canada. Yeah, he ran schools in Canada and he did guardianship and all that. So, you know, he's well sorted. And he was looking at me and thinking, oh, this young girl. Yeah, let's give her a hand. <laughs> So she said, he said to me, he said, in China, if you want to make it, you're going to be everybody's friends. And I thought, huh, what does that mean? So he said, look at what you've got. What are your resources? Your assets are your contracts. So bear in mind, this is early-ish day in China, 2006. So a lot of the agents would not have covered all grounds in the UK. Whereas because I started in 2003, really, you know, signing up the contract, I've already had three years um, ahead of them. And I basically had 
probably more than 70 contracts, I mean, 70 uh, HEI partners at the time. Now we have 110, but, you know, those days it was good compared to a lot of local Chinese. So um, this gentleman said, what you should do is look into working with everyone, make, make everyone your friend. And I thought, ah, okay. And that's where the B2B model was born. That's brilliant, Susan. Yeah. I can see in your face, you're just reminiscing about those days, right? You're, you're, oh, yeah. The movie's playing in your head right now. <laughs> and I was going to ask you, that's what I was going to get to is we talk about destiny benders on this podcast. That's the whole idea behind it. Talking about people who come into our lives, change our trajectories or people that we impact. And sounds like this gentleman was one such person that came into your life, mm. uh, kind of help you, guide you. Um, can you think of, you know, over those years, like other people who you really look up to or who came in and just literally changed your destiny? Oh, that gentleman, definitely. The, the one I could think of is, might not be what you expect. OK, she was my first staff that I recruited in China. She was from the Northeast. She was also educated in the UK. Very smart lady. When she joined us, she was she was just a new mom. So, you know, she knew exactly how it is to have a child and wanting to have, you know, to pave the future way of their education pathway, all that. And she was very, very good at sales. Okay. And she stayed with us for two years. And about one month into of joining my company, I made her the office manager because she was, she was just so good. So I promoted it straight away. And the first thing I instructed her was, please go ahead and sign up all of our colleagues with a labor contract or employee contract. Because that was when China just started out. Can you believe it? In 2006, before that, everything was like wild, wild west. Nobody had contracts, even with your employee. So that was a new law that came to play. So um, as an employer, as a business owner, you need to have contracts with everyone. So that was her first um, instruction as a job as office manager. And she did that. And I trusted her. And I'm sure she's done it all well. But guess what? Two years down the line, on the second year of her anniversary, she submitted her resignation, resignation to me. And the one week after that, she sued the company. She sued the company on the ground that We'd never signed a contract with her. So it was the intention for her to sign everybody out up but miss herself. And because she's gained my trust, I'd assume she'd done everything. I mean, I did check. I just didn't check hers. Yeah. And at the time, uh, we had a legal advisor. They said, well, you, you know, Susie, you better settle up because in China, in those days, everything was all protective on the employee, not on the employer. So we kind of just paid off outside of court because it would be a, just an ardu arduous um, process if we go into court. And I think a few months later, she opened up shop in front of us as well. Yeah, thinking that um, she comes from a big family in the Northeast. Maybe she thinks that she has resources, um, a chain of nonstop students coming through. Uh, but a year down the line, she, she closed and went home. Yeah. So I would say this person, even though she's like the antagonist of my story, but she taught me a lot of things. She taught me that when you give out trust, you have to do a lot of due diligence. And even if you're everything's going really, really well, always anticipate the unexpected. Yeah. As a business person, you just have to have lots of plan B's and make contingency for these fallouts. I agree with you 100%. I've had, I had a couple. <laughs> Or is my own? <laughs> like yeah. that. But, you know, that's such an interesting answer, right? We always talk to people about destiny benders and there's always a positive, you know, mm -hmm. connotation to it. 
But I, I appreciate you sharing this because that you're right. There's a lot of lessons learned and, mm. you know, in a negative way or, or not so positive way. But actually, I, I take it as a positive because I'm so glad it happened early on. You see, this thing happened in 2008. I think if it happened today, I would have much more to lose. And I don't know whether I'll be able to make a comeback because at least those days, it was small money, really just one person. And as soon as I learned the lesson, I knew there were areas, um, holes that in my comedy I need to fill up quickly. So I saw it as a positive to in your honesty. That's fantastic. Yeah, I like that spin on our destiny bending stories that we we often ask people who are on our podcast. And as Girish said, totally different, but a good one. So I'm going to move to something slightly different. And the way that I know you, Susan, is via LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah <laughs> How do you yeah, know yeah. anybody these days? <laughs> LinkedIn, uh, right? Yeah. Mm. And that we follow each other or what is it? Connections. Yes. Connections. That's it. And then I think we met recently at the Pi Live, didn't mm-hmm. we? We did. Uh, in London two months ago. So it was great to meet you in person. But one thing I noticed on LinkedIn is your posts. And that's what led me to reach out to you today is that I really enjoy reading your posts. And you're a little bit of a a LinkedIn influencer with an international education. You know, tell us a little bit more about your posts and how do you get the ideas for these posts? The one in particular, I think I told you, I reached out to you about, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the word. When she is it. (laughs) Yes. Relationship, yeah. Relationships, yeah. Tell us about that. Oh well, Guan Xi is a, it's such a mysterious term that whoever does business or do do business in China or with the Chinese, they will automatically learn. It's probably the one of the first three phrases they learn, and, and they say, "Oh, we need to establish that." But it's been shrouded in some sort of veil, isn't it? People think, "Oh, this is something so intangible." but yet you have to get it right. Otherwise you won't be able to get through to your Chinese business counterpart. So what I'm trying to do on LinkedIn is, because I know majority of the people on LinkedIn are professionals and they are doing business. When you're one in five people in the world is Chinese, it's inevitable you'll encounter someone Chinese as your business um, client, customer or business counterpart. So this is something I'm trying to promote in my little way to explain. It's not something fancy. It's not something so um, intangible and unapproachable. We just practice it in our daily life. And all it is, is building up a good relationship. Like today, oh, yesterday I posted, you know, because recently there's so much negativity around China. You know, let's not disregard the political side of things, but brands coming out, you know, um, Airbnb just announced, oh, you know, we're retreating. And Harrow Beijing has to drop their name because of the recent legal um, regulations in China. They now change the name to called Leader. So I think lots of things are putting China on the spotlight, but, you know, kind of negative tone. And I'm just, I don't like to see that. I'm ethnically Chinese, although I'm not from China, I'm from Taiwan. I still feel very much Chinese in terms of ethnicity. And I feel I benefited from building a business in China. I've also benefited a lot from the UK. And I do want to bridge the two in a better way. And it just feels like current um, sentiment is not going that way. So with my little bit of effort of explaining what Gap Guanxing is, I just hope 
to bridge the gap and make people, especially in the educational industry, to understand it really doesn't take much. All it is, give before you take. If you want to get something, soil the seed, fertilize the land, and then you will see things will reap. And don't ever take a short-term goal. Take it on the long haul. See, anything you want to deal with the China, in, with the Chinese, think of it a long-term way. I think a lot of people go in uh, back, you know, maybe 15 years ago, like I said, it was a wild, wild west. They think they could just go in and take, take, take. But it's not like that anymore. Yeah, and you should never, you shouldn't have even begun like that. I think um, those people who, who made buckets of gold, just they were lucky and they should not anticipate things are what they were before. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, I talk about that in the context of India as well. You yeah. can't just come and harvest, right? You have to plant the seed, you got to water, you got to take care of it before you start to harvest. But, you know, so your point about how you're trying to be an ambassador to your, you know, your culture to hmm. try to put a positive, you know, face of what China is about, uh, you know, international education is basically that, isn't it? instead of transactional relationships, really building transformational relationships. So talk a little bit about your work in that sense. So you're, you as a person on LinkedIn, I see your post, you're doing those things. But from a work standpoint, how do you see Oxbridge Holdings doing that or promoting that with the students you work with or the universities you work with? Where do you go next? I think a lot of attention is now away from China, which is Good in the sense that it gives us a bit of a breathing time to think how we can, how can we do better. There are two things I really would love to achieve in my lifetime. You know, as long as I'm in this education sector, this is something I personally put as my goal, and I I, I see as the company goal as well. First is to, to transform the mentality towards ranking. <laughs> yeah. I know it's probably a lot of people probably say, well, it's a bit of a luxurious way for you to say it because you come from Cambridge. You know, I chose Cambridge because it had one of the great courses that I like, architecture. And I do think it was suitable for me at the time, but it might not be suitable for everyone. And I was fortunate to be in a position to, to reach that university, but I will not wish that on everybody else. I think everyone will have a suitable destination for themselves. So this is what I'm trying to do with the company, with my LinkedIn, is to promote the idea that we should pursue our own destiny on our own course and find something that is most suited for ourselves. So that's number one. And secondly is, it goes way back to the starting point. I don't think we should limit ourselves to what we've learned at school and what we've learned at university. In fact, is university important? I know I mean this business, you guys are, but I think it's a valid question. My elder daughter always, you know, ate the A-star nines and, you know, she's doing, I just had her final exam last week. She's taking a gap here. She's going to make a go with her startup. She's probably going to fly off to Africa to do it. Yeah, and I fully encourage her, I fully back her up. There is that possibility she might not even go to university in the end. And it's okay by me. So that's the thing. I want to have these two things really imprinted on the modern Chinese mind because I feel education is at the core of all transformation. 
if more people buy into this thing, more more Chinese buy into things. I imagine one in five people in the whole world Chinese. How much better this world is going to be? Less competitive, more unity, and more happy people because they are really pursuing things that they love. Yeah, call me naive, but that is my goal. I don't think you're naive at all. I mean, I, I see. I mean, if we do the same thing in India, that's two out of five people in the world. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. That's uh, if we yeah. do that in Africa, that's three out of five people. That's three billion people right there. No, yeah. I, I admire that. You know, coming from Cambridge and running a company in education, you're encouraging your daughter to kind of go follow her dreams and yeah. maybe not go to university. I mean, that's brilliant. What a lucky young woman she is. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. She has to make her living though. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very not not like、um, a traditional or a typical Chinese mom. So when my two girls, I've got two girls, when they were young, I often a plethora of extracurriculars. I say just do whatever. So they've done drama, they've got swimming. Obviously, learned a bit Chinese, but they gave up immediately. I just said, "That's、no, okay. You don't have to learn." Because in my mind, twenty years down the line, there will be AI helping you do some sort of translation. As long as you talk and listen, you don't need to write or read. That's fine. Yeah. So they did a lot of different things. But come secondary school, I said just focus on one because the rest you can do at school. But focus honing on the one thing you can't live without. And they both chose drama. And that's one last thing that majority of Chinese moms would think. Oh, go drama! What use is that? Why didn't you choose like human or robotic coding? <laughs> no, yeah. But I think that drama did them really good. Given any time, both my girls can go on a stage impromptu to make a speech, and they will not fade. They they will not be shy and just do it. Oh, that's a great skill to have, right? We talk、yeah. about that all the time. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you as as well, Susan. I, I, my son is fifteen, so he'll be starting. He'll do GCSEs next year, and then go on to A levels, obviously. But he also doesn't. He's not sure if he wants to go to university.、Mm. Um, he wants to maybe do a vocational technical course, mechanical engineering, but actually mechanical working on cars and things like this. And I'm all for it. You know what? My entire career has been working in higher education, but if he doesn't want to go to university, I am okay with that. A okay, as long as he's doing something that he enjoys and there's a career path in it, you know. Yeah, and Susan, I might need you to talk to my oldest daughter. She's a junior this year, going into senior. I'm encouraging her to take a gap year after high、yeah. school. But you know, anyway, I know we want to be cognizant of time here. And one of the、yeah. things that we do as we wrap up the podcast is we always ask a bunch of quick fire questions, something on a light,、mm-hmm. lighter note. So my my first question to you is: When you become a radio jockey, <laughs> what will your RJ or DJ name、yeah. be? Yeah. Oh, Midnight Caller. What? Midnight Caller. <laughs> you gotta explain. That, pardon? <laughs> explain that. Is that really bad? No, no, no. It's hysterical no, 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 no. that you said it so quickly. It? Oh, oh God. Okay, because that scared me. I thought was that a good. You know, like cultural context, no, like the bender bit. <laughs> no, okay. We're okay. surprised because you knew this right away. Like you've yeah, well, it's been、thought. my dream since age of sixteen, of course. From Mila Kola, it's a it's actually a U.S. sitcom. So I, I'm guessing neither of you've watched it. But、yeah. when I was young,、um, I think it was in Taiwan. I sort of watched it, and this was a a a, a 
American DJ and he's on radio, but he also solved cases. So it's a bit of a prime kind of a thing. He always talked to his audience and, and helped them out and then get, became a detective sort of uh, moonlighting. And I just lo- yeah. loved this program called Midnight Call. Well, he called himself the Midnight Caller. So I think, ah, I'm going to do that. Do my own Asian version. The Midnight Caller. I love it. Yeah. I Girish, I have never heard this one. Have you? Girish is in the States, even though he's from India. And I grew Google up it. Yeah. I'm going to Google it right yeah. now. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Well, second question, quick fire question. What book are you reading now? Or what is a book that you've read recently that you can recommend to our audience? It's called Ooh. Be a Triangle, Lily Singh. Um, I listened to a podcast that she was interviewed by Steve Stephen Barrett. But, but sorry, Bartlett, Bartlett, Stephen Bartlett. It just documented how she came about. I and mean, she, she went into a bit of depression during COVID because all the jobs went dry and she did not know who she was anymore. But she spent a good two years trying to rediscover and become much more self-aware. And she found the three pillars. Yeah. So um, I literally just arrived today. So I haven't delved deeper yet. So Susan, uh, if I ran into you at a bar, what would you be drinking? A GNT. Hey, Hendrix with a slice of cucumber. Well, next time we meet, well, when we meet, we're going to have that. Okay. How about yourself? Uh, I'm more of a Captain and Coke kind of guy. Okay, cool. Really? Yeah, I would not have pegged you for that. No. Oh, Captain is rum, is it? Is yeah. rum? Yeah. Ah, okay. Oh, okay, cool. I like rum. Ah. What, would you, what would you think, Jess? What would you guess? A beer. I would have guessed beer for you. Yeah. I don't like beer at all. (laughs) I I took you as a whiskey guy, actually. We've been doing a podcast together for like months now, and I feel like I don't know you at all. Yeah. Well, we might have to do a podcast on each other. (laughs) You do a podcast and bring your own drink. How about Jessica? What would you drink? Um, you know what? I try something different every single time. Mm. Yeah. If there's something special or we're somewhere and it's like a local thing, then I usually go for that. Mm. I don't always like it, but I try. So Susan, what's your next trip coming up when you go abroad? Where, where are you heading to next? I've just come back from Switzerland. So I haven't planned the next one yet. I think in terms of work, I, ha- I would like to do a bit of um, inside Britain maybe go up to Edinburgh, you know, as far and work my way down Lake District, Lancaster and all that. Mm-hmm. Oh God, abroad, possibly East coast of US. Cause my second one is also looking to looking at USA. Oh. She, she's a, the very drama, very social science. She wants to do like Middle Eastern studies. I feel like I'll have two daughters. I need to, they will live at home. I still need to you, you know, sort of, uh, what's the word for it? You know, they would they live with me until like the 30s. They're not going to make out their home. You know, one's an entrepreneur, one is an anthropologist. Yeah. Do you know what? Um, if my two daughters did make it to America, like, um, and preferably on the same coast, not one on the east, and, but who knows? Maybe the, yeah, um, it's very likely I will relocate and begin oh. another branch of my business and look at the USA. Oh my God, I've said it out in the, in the public now. <laughs> so it's on the podcast. It it's yeah, I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> now you got to yeah. make it happen. But I would love that because it will really make it a full circle because I'll be, I used to live in New York um, when I was little. So I think that's something quite special for me if I could travel around the world and back to New York again. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be something? 
That would be something. That well, be we wish you the best of luck. Uh, you know, you. clearly you're very successful. I wish you continued success and hopefully our, our paths will cross soon. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for today's conversation. Fully enjoyed it. And I hope that we will get to see each other again, Jessica, very soon. Yeah. And definitely Garish. Every yeah. you know, if you ever come by London, please call me. You know, let's um have a drink together. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Destiny Benders. Join us next week when we speak with Troy Peden, the founder of GoAbroad.com. Mm-hmm.